Okay. Lucky number 50. <clears throat> Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're talking about the epic, mega-sized Excalibur number 50, Winner Loses All, in which saving the universe means everyone has to go inside everybody else, and Rachel gets some big-ass <laughs> hero moments. Excalibur number 50 was originally published in May 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing in pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Joe Rojas on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Cherry Cavanaugh on editing. Well, the crowd lets you know what they think of it. Now we will wait for the judges. Michael Jordan score 50. They gave him a 50. They gave Jordan a 50. He defends his championship. <laughs> We've got a lot of comic book to cover this week, so I'm not messing around. I am Dr. Anna Papard, writer and researcher of stuff about gender and sexuality in comics. I'm also the unofficial PR manager of Kurt Wagner and a person who had to write a plot summary of the comic book known as Excalibur number 50. We will see how that goes. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Reacquaint us with your exploits. Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, or you can call me Anna, or you can call me Andrew, because we're going to climb inside of each other. <laughs> no, we're not. No, we're not. And then just like maybe I'll just blow up somebody's house, you know? That's something that I might do. I don't understand this book. By the way, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying there's things I don't understand. This is going to be really weird. That said, I read comic books professionally and have for quite a while now. Um, and I'm an adjunct professor of English and rhetoric and communications and cultural studies and, and comics. And I do sex and violence and comics and other pop culture on this show and another show called Vox Popcast. I'm very, very confused today. <laughs> so, oh, I'll, I'll help you sort it all out, Bab. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and I've read the, again, and I've read all these books before. I read this 30 years ago and I, and then reading again this week, I'm just like, did I get this before? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Makes perfect sense. You just got to roll with it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Andrew, remind us of your dedication to the cause. Hey, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run. If Anna, Mav, and I were to Voltron ourselves together into the ultimate podcast host, I would be the <laughs> one providing both pretentiousness and snobbery. So basically Brian, but without the musculature. 
And to illustrate this point, will I be complaining that mass is presented as variable rather than a universal constant in this that superhero That bothers comic? me so Probably. much. <laughs> yeah. I know, right? It's, it's like, like the Transformers so movie. I was like, no. If that robot sits on Shia LaBeouf, it kills him. Oh, my God. oh we're nerds. Okay. <laughs> Well, I look forward to that. That's not where I took the conversation in my notes at all, but we can certainly explore that topic. Um, we are joined this week by a wonderful comic scholar that we're so lucky to have with us. The pod is awestruck to welcome Dr. Andrew Kunko. Welcome, Andy. Thanks for having me. We're so pleased to have you, and I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Andy Kunke is Professor of English and Division Chair for now at the University of South Carolina Sumter. He is the author of Autobiographical Comics from the Bloomsbury Comic Studies series and The Life and Comics of Howard Cruz, Taking Risks in the Service of Truth, which is hot off the presses from Rector's University Press. Congratulations, Andy. Looking forward Thanks. to reading mm -hmm. it. He has also published on Will Eisner, Kyle Baker, Jack Katz, and Crime Comics, among other topics. He also serves as the Comic Studies Society's Ombudsman, as book editor for Inks, the Journal of Comic Studies Society, and is on the board for the International Comic Arts Forum. He is currently co-writing the Routledge Introduction to American Comics with Rachel R. Miller and a book on the publishers Dell and Gold Key. So many exciting things, Andy. I would love to talk about all of them, and we'll talk about a little of them maybe because I want to hear a little bit about your comics origin story to kick off the pod as we often do. So what started you on the road to loving comics? We're going right back to the beginning okay well um I, re I recently turned 53 and as our family's kind of lore goes i taught myself how to read from comics when i was three years old yeah <laughs> so wow. i'm in my fifth my half century of, of comic comics reading and i don't know unlike a lot of people i talk to or you know in my boat uh in terms of age wise and stuff like that I never had a period in my life where I stopped reading comics and then came back. I was just always reading. I've been always been reading comics. Those first comics, well, I think they probably were, were like Harvey comics, Richie Rich, especially I was really into. My family had as like a babysitter was this older Greek family that uh, had just a stack of Harvey's and Archie comics that they didn't really have to do a lot of babysitting for me. I just yeah. sat there and read those comics over and over again. And then just, you know, again, just kind of always read comics. When I was like 12 years old or so, my mom owned a cafe in a small town in North Dakota where, where I grew up. And I supposedly was selling, buying and selling comics out of her back room. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I never sold, I never sold a single comic, but I, bought comics for mm -hmm. a nickel if they didn't have a cover and a, and a dime if they had a cover and was supposed to be selling them for a dime coverless and a quarter with a cover. But I never, again, never sold a single one. <laughs> so, and one day a, a guy came in who was at this time in his thirties and had to get rid of his comic book collection. And I wasn't there and my mom gave him $25 for it. And it was like thousands of comics that oh we're going back to the earliest, you know, Marvel comics from uh, 1960s and so on. But that was like kind of my crash course then education in comics history was that that big load of comics that I hauled around and beat the crap out of for most of my teenage years then. Comics and, are meant to be read. Yeah. And got rid of some of them at different phases of my life. I think I only have a handful of those comics left. But yeah, so I've always I've always been reading comics. I feel like Having been, you know, a kid in that generation that was eight years old when Star Wars came out, I feel like pop culture has been made for me since then. You know, I'm 
17 years old, 18 years old and Watchmen comes out and, um, mm. you know, I'm reading like stuff like American Flag and John Sable Freelance and stuff was like that were my favorite comics when I was like 14 or 15. That comics kind of aged with me in a sense. Um, that's kind of egotistical because I'm sure there were enough adult comics, you know, prior to that. But I, there was always something new I always felt that I could get into that, you know, was either at my maturity level or just ahead of it. So that's probably the main reason why I never stopped reading comics. Well, how did you start studying comics? Was it always part of your academic practice? No, no, it hasn't. I, um, I mean, one of the things I'm most proud of in my academic career is that when I graduated from college, uh, as an undergrad, one of my professors wrote in the letter of recommendation, he was the first person I knew who was in the mouse. And this, this was 1991. <laughs> so, you know, I've, I've always kind of worn that as a, as a badge of honor. And even though I didn't kind of conceive at that time that, that I, like doing comic studies in college was a thing, I do remember even talking about to friends at that time, you know, and this is late 80s, early 90s that, you know, I'd like to be studying stuff like Watchmen in, in a grad school and hope that would be a possibility someday. But I went a pretty traditional route in grad school and did my dissertation in 20th century British literature. And, you know, my, my first academic job then was, was in British literature. And so, you know, I milked my dissertation for every conference paper and essay and, and a book to get to the place where I could get, you know, tenure. And then after getting tenure, kind of reassessed things and thought, I don't want to be doing that for the rest of my career. I mean, I love British literature and, you know, I still read it, but my, you know, my real passion was comics and some people, you know, my, my wife and others who know me have said, like, you've been doing, you've been preparing for this work for your entire life. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and I really feel that way. And so, you know, I also got kind of lucky that comic studies was emerging at that time. Conferences were starting to appear and special issues of journals and things like that were showing up and University of Mississippi Press was was starting, you know, to, to have their dedicated uh, line for comic studies. And so I just went into that and, you know, have, have loved it ever since. And that's really where my passion is. Aww, I love that. Can I ask you a little bit about your Excalibur origin story? Like, I know you were excited to come on the pod. You knew this mm -hmm. issue from memory. You wanted to talk <laughs> about this one. So what's kind of your history with Excalibur? Did you read it when it was coming out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to kind of back up, back up a second. So, you know, in that that, that superhero origins or that comics origin story I gave you. I was primarily a DC kid growing up, though I had a had a ton of Marvel comics. I didn't read any any regularly really. And at one point I think I just I decided to give in and and try X-Men out around issue 162. So getting right into the the brood saga. Good and job. you know I, I yeah and I showed my students the that issue the other day and pointed out like this is how could you not be hooked on X-Men when you see like, you know, Wolverine fighting on his own. Also trying to reject the brood implant and so on. So, and then, you know, Paul Smith comes in in a couple yeah. issues and then I'm on board for him. And just to kind of, I guess, kind of prove my Nightcrawler bona fides, <laughs> I, um, I, I don't know if you remember that Marvel did a button series that 
Paul Smith drew. Okay, yeah. And I bought the Nightcrawler one for like two bucks, and that was the cost of like two and a half comics or something then. Aww. But I, but I, I, I had to have it. And I think I still have it somewhere in a box. But anyway, I was I got hooked then on X Men on Paul Smith run, and then stayed with it until about. I think about issue 198 because I quit reading Marvel comics altogether when Secret Wars 2 came out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I don't know if it was, you know, Peter Parker teaching the Beyonder how to poop, but that that drove me away. But it was was something there that I was just, I, I just wasn't continuing with Marvel comics then. But when Excalibur started then, I was in the tank already for Alan Davis. And so I definitely got Excalibur, you know, for number one, or the I got the sword is drawn for his art. And so stuck with Excalibur when, uh, while he was, while he was drawing it and Claremont was writing it and then quit when he left and then came back uh, with a vengeance when um, he started writing and drawing with issue 42. Hey, I'm anxious to get into your kind of reaction to rereading these comics after all those years, but I think we'll do our issue summary first and then come back to that and get into the issue at hand. So issue summary, I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd spend our last hour on Earth with you any day. But as always, let's start preparing for the end of the multiverse with a plot summary. Excalibur number 50 opens in the cellar of the lighthouse where Necrom continues to threaten Rachel, saying that if she doesn't release the Phoenix Force to him, he's going to destroy the world, yada yada. Yada, yada. Kylan stabs him and makes him leave. Farron pursues Necrom and Kylan pursues Farron, but no one can pursue Kylan because of the sudden appearance of a cross-dimensional motorway. The team gets separated in the confusion. Cerise explains that the cross-dimensional illusions are only that. At first, they think Widget is generating them, but in fact, it's Rachel. We're reminded with a flashback to Days of Future Past that she's demonstrated time-manipulating abilities before. Outside the lighthouse, Farron fights Necrom, and Di Thomas, Miss Witherspoon, and Micromax arrive by helicopter. Micromax seizes his chance for a big hero moment, diving from the helicopter while increasing his size and density to that of a meteor, attempting to crush Necrom. He does crush him pretty good, but Necrom's a survivor. Back inside the lighthouse, there's some MacGuffin-y science stuff about a convergence of realities, and then Alistair's like, hey, you should all go inside each other, and Kitty's like, that's crazy, and Kurt's like, no, I think we should do it. So they do! Kitty phases into Rachel, who phases into Kurt, who phases into Megan, currently in her true form, who finally steps into the enlarged Brian, who then flies into the energy matrix, repairing the fabric of reality or something. Meanwhile, on Otherworld, Merlin finally explains his plans to Roma for a gambit extending back to when Merlin was only a student of magic, specifically a student of Necrom. The original Farron was also a student of Necrom, and it was Necrom who discovered the energy matrix and the doorways to other dimensions. The moment that the realities aligned, Farron caused the Phoenix to project the tower across time, which would later become Excalibur's lighthouse. At that moment, Necrom also attacked Farron, attempting to collapse all realities into one and absorb the energy which would make him omnipotent. But Farron had the Phoenix Force on his side, fighting off Necrom while Merlin leapt into the Matrix. Instead of killing Farron, Necrom ripped the Phoenix Force from him and left him powerless. He released part of the Phoenix Force, but used the rest, along with some life energy, to create the Anti-Phoenix before Necrom went into the multiverse to prepare. While Farron spent the rest of his life awaiting the Anti-Phoenix before putting his power into the Earth, Merlin had harnessed the Matrix and used its power to create other world and found the Captain Britain Corps to police the multiverse and aid in the hunt for Necrom. It is unfortunate that this really important canon rejigging happened
happens in a dense and tedious info dump, but such is life. Excalibur arrive on Otherworld and unmerge from each other, as Necrom appears above them. Kurt tries to stop Rachel from going after Necrom, but she gives him a heck no, reigniting the Phoenix Force in a truly spectacular blaze of glory. Rachel slashes off Necrom's hand before opening a stargate across time and space to a dead world, where Rachel and Necrom engage in a truly, truly cosmic battle, climaxing in Rachel giving Necrom what he wants, the full power of the Phoenix. It destroys him. But the conflict also knocks Rachel unconscious, and she drifts through time and space before vanishing and reappearing on Otherworld in front of Excalibur, wearing the original gold and green Phoenix costume. Before they can properly examine Rachel, Roma and Merlin appear. Merlin tells Excalibur about the Gambit, smugly informing them that he expected two of them to die, not just one. For a moment, it looks like Excalibur are gonna freaking kill Merlin, but instead, Megan stays Brian's hand and directs all the energy stored in his newfound bulk at the tower. A small crack appears, which spreads, toppling all the towers across the multiverse. Merlin is displeased. Roma dissuades him from killing Excalibur, then sends Excalibur home to the 616. They arrive at Braddock Manor, where Alistair, Di, Miss Witherspoon, Kylan, Cerise, and Farron are waiting. As they enter the manor, carrying the still unresponsive Rachel, they walk over the tiled floor, with Brian announcing they're nobody's pawns now. Lots to talk about in this one, so let's just dive right in, starting with our honored guests' first impressions. So, Andy, I think you're probably rereading this issue for the first time in a while. So what was your reaction to revisiting it? And I think that you've been revisiting earlier issues in the series too and kind of catching up to where we are too. So yeah, any thoughts about revisiting it? To explain one thing there. So I unfortunately recently had like an extended hospital stay for some for some heart issues that I've developed. And part of my recovery, I did a massive read through on Excalibur. On Black Friday, my local comic shop had like a 25 cent back issue sale and I got every issue of Excalibur that I didn't have. Uh, oh, so that was man. like 18, 18 bucks. So you can figure <laughs> out, like, do, do the math how much I needed to fill in. But um, yeah, so I read while I was recovering issues 42 to the end of the Warren Ellis run. So 103, a lot of it was revisiting. Some of it was new, but one of the reasons I really wanted to do, I was so like when I was talking to you, Anna via email about doing the podcast and you said issue 50 was available. I kind of selfishly leaped at that to get it because first of all, I love anniversary issues. I will get an anniversary issue of a series. I'm not reading just because (laughs) I don't know. As a kid, it felt, like I was getting more for my money, mm-hmm. um, getting some extra value. So I love the idea of anniversary issues and talking about them. And so that was kind of the main thing, the reason I wanted to do. But in coming back to this, part of the other kind of selfish reason I wanted to do this issue is because I wanted to also like hear your response because I feel like reading this issue and kind of following along with the podcast over the last 50 plus episodes that this, you know, retcons and changes so many things you've been talking about for what, like a year that (laughs) (laughs) that I wanted to have like a front seat to your response. (laughs) So I don't know if I'll shut up later on and just sit back and listen to you. um, Some of this stuff I'm like, I really want to know what they're going to say about this, about this, (laughs) this issue. But, you know, when I opened up that issue, come back to it again, I just, you know, I looked at some of this dialogue and I'm like, does this dialogue make any sense outside of, (laughs) outside of the comics world? I mean, just looking at the first couple pages and seeing, you know, you cannot access the Phoenix force while you keep it in the dormant state. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> I know, um, I know. 
<laughs> and and but but you know i love that stuff and one i guess one of the other things that struck me about this is how or what i guess one of the questions i had really was like how much of this stuff is still around i mean do have we ever seen necrom again kylan cerise Firon. i know we're probably going to talk at length about we're going to spend an hour on micromax so yeah. <laughs> um, i don't know how much i want to say about how much i love micromax yet but or, or or the stuff about phoenix that gets kind of revealed in here how much of that stuff survives this issue yeah as we've talked about on previous pods the phoenix force is usually whatever whatever story needs it to be at whatever time um and place so (laughs) which like either is delightful or frustrating depending on how much you care about what it means um but yeah certain characters have popped up from time to time over the years but definitely these alec davis created characters have not had a chance to shine past the alan davis era for sure <laughs> um other first impressions from andrew and mav like mav was kind of coming in hot with some complaints which i thought was interesting <laughs> I, I, I kind of read this issue and i was I, like i like this issue so interesting. i don't want to say the complaints this is um i'm, tra- I'm gonna try to be fair with this one which is to say I don't dislike it. I I think it's really fun. None of it makes any sense. (laughs) When we do this show, I always try to give credit to the people that I don't like and also fairly criticize the people that I do like. I am enough of an Alan Davis fanboy that I enjoyed this issue. But if I want to come in with pure literary scholar, comic scholar, you know, I'm approaching this for the first time without bringing any of my own personal anything to this. This mostly doesn't make any sense. There's just flat out gibberish in here. Like some of the storytelling beats, the narrative construction of this issue. I mean, the thing that we I made fun of in my intro where they all merge, which we'll talk about in depth, like it's ultimately pointless. Nothing in here makes sense. It's just, it, oh, it's fun. I agree. Excalibur merging is the most important thing that's ever happened in Excalibur. And I'm totally bought into Right. From, well, from a fangirl point of view or from a narrative point of view. And like, it's hard to, it's hard to separate. And I was just like, I don't know how to even approach this because there's so much, them merging is really, really cool. And I, and I'm going to argue it even has, I mean, in fact, I think you'll make the same argue, argument that I do. It has foreshadowing all the way back in, in issue five of Excalibur. That's a thing. Why is it done? You know, cause Alan Davis like started with, I want to merge them and then work backwards from there. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of a, it, it's, it's weird. It's a weird book. <laughs> well, how are, how are Even you? Even for Excalibur, it's a weird book. How are you feeling about it, Andrew? Because I think the question I want to go to kind of next has to do with how we approach it as an anniversary issue, which is not something I'd really thought about, but then Andy brought it up. And I think that that's an interesting question because there's so many bombastic moments in this comic, which I think is how I'm going to argue that it's kind of delightful. But, uh, and Andrew, what were your first impressions of it, though, first? I'm on the same page as you. I think I, I think I was going to say Verve, but I think Bombast probably captures it better, which is something Dave. Davis doesn't really do that much of so to see mm-hmm. him kind of go all in in an epic finale in which he throws every imaginable epic trope into the same blender um yeah there you like, go <laughs> i agree with mav and andy it doesn't make sense but i'm <laughs> i'm okay enjoying it in its senselessness yeah and i think there's some cool things that i really like I, I like we've already mentioned um davis's draftsmanship uh where he's getting a little bit more experimental at the end i think that's really cool to see him do um and i, I really liked actually just because i'm the claremont guy 
I liked the callbacks to the Dark Phoenix saga um, for a run in which Davis was largely trying to distance himself from Claremont's Excalibur, which I also, I guess I said, really like. That's good creative direction. But to still kind of honor that while closing off this section of Rachel's story, um, I thought was really cool. So there's a lot here I, I enjoy, but I cannot defend the logic of it. <laughs> Some of the dialogue or character beats or that kind of stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I sort of, I don't think it's a good comic, but I think it's a <laughs> okay, comic that I love despite it not being good. <laughs> and good is in quotation marks there, right? Because what makes a comic good? I mean, it's good if it brings us joy, right? And this comic <laughs> brings me yeah. tremendous joy. I, I am on record on, on this show and my other show. I am the world's biggest Riverdale fan. So I understand <laughs> that things don't have to necessarily be good in order to be great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the anniversary issue thing because I'd like to get Andy to talk about that about you know why anniversary issues appeal and again to me I just think about this issue as it is a lot of bang for your buck you know this is just a lot of explosions a lot of big hero moments everybody gets a chance to do something we got nine pages of like cosmic chaos in this comic again Alan Davis doing some ex very experimental by his standards draftsmanship so Andy if you evaluate this as an anniversary issue as a number 50 as a climax of the Excalibur story up to this point is that a worthwhile way to consider whether this is a good comic that was my main kind of interest in anniversary issues when I was a kid is does like I don't have that much money to spend on comics if I'm going to spend this amount it's got to give me you know it's got to give me my money's worth this one really does not just in terms of like the action and stuff but it it's so consequential it feels like you know especially and then again now in hindsight of having reread the first 50 issues going into this and you know listening to this podcast especially it does feel like there's so many callbacks going all the way you know all the way back to the sword is drawn that it re it rewards a loyal reading over 50 issues even if it changes stuff and might change stuff in ways that we might not want it to change i think that feeling that that this earns its anniversary issue status through its consequence and its action and its excitement you know is is how i would end up evaluating it yeah yeah definitely me too i mean i can't be objective about this comic i just read it and i felt the bigness of it i got excited reading this comic i mean i <laughs> tweeted out you know i put on special glitter makeup to like <laughs> read the comic i'm so excited <laughs> but, um, well let's talk a little bit about the setup and let's get into kind of what the story is here so we talked in the last episode a little bit about the productive tension of we've got an hour left until the end of the world and we had them all trapped in the lighthouse and trying to figure out what they're going to do we have a little bit of a continuation of that here but i mean what did you feel about the setup for this issue andy like when you read those first six pages or so are you invested in this conflict are you excited to see what's going to happen how are kind of stakes and tension established here in these opening pages that's that's a really good question because like like i said kind of in my intro to this that in kind of come reading some of the dialogue in here. Some of this dialogue <laughs> is, I mean, it might make sense to comics readers, but it's very know. expository at times. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah. It is. And you know, when Mav and Andrew were talking about too, about how stuff doesn't make sense in here that I don't know if it necessarily makes sense to Alan Davis either. Um, because there's so many of these things like, is Necrom this powerful or is he faking it? And those those things don't even seem to ever get answered. So even he doesn't know, even he doesn't know why the merging works. He doesn't care. It's fine. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm okay with that too, but getting to the first six pages or so, I mean, the stuff that I love the most, honestly, in the first six pages is not so much the dialogue and the, the exposition, but all the cross time yeah, uh, yeah. mirages, especially the one that's on mm. the bottom of the second page where we get like the master of Kung Fu, Captain Britain. Yeah. I want I want that story. I want to see I want to see that guy again. Yeah, we pitched on Twitter that we need an exile style series of all the Excalibur multiverse that we only got glimpses of throughout the series. But yeah, I take your point about Necrom, and I don't know, I go both ways on whether that's effective, because I like this kind of thing with Kylan being sort of the only one that can hurt him, or at least has a special ability to hurt him, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, whatever, it's a trope that, you know, there's a hero who's destined to be the one, the only person who can defeat some villain, I mean, that's in a billion stories, but I sort of like the mystery around that a little bit, the same way that, I don't know, magic can be exciting that way, because you kind of don't know how it's going to work, and it's sort of a wrench that you can throw into superhero spaces but well I don't know like Andrew how did you feel about kind of this opening setup like I mean it is a lot of exposition it is a lot of sort of catching readers up about what the stakes are here like Rachel you did this thing where now you're responsible for Necrom <laughs> having the Phoenix Force and if you turn on the Phoenix Force your memories will get dissolved so this is an emotional crisis for you what shall we do and there is a lot of that going on and yet it's combined with Alan Davis throwing everything at the wall in this issue so combined with this really like as we said before bombastic art but i mean what did you think did you think it was an effective setup i don't know i i, I like the the dynamic and it, it's it's a stereo or a cliche as well of like the villain trying to convince you to accidentally release the power yeah, yeah. um through illusion but i do like that dynamic and i think that's an especially interesting dynamic to apply to rachel um as a character who has a very complex relationship to her own power but as you said it doesn't make sense like even just explaining you know I, he's gonna kill our friends if i don't release the phoenix he's gonna kill everybody if you do um <laughs> like there's not a lot of um stakes there like he's trying to set up a kobayashi maru and i don't think he's got the logic for it but i still enjoy the melodrama of it like i think yeah it looks cool necrom's plan doesn't make sense i mean no, it, not it, at all. The, the plan doesn't make sense so when merlin shows up and gives the backstory that doesn't make sense therefore yeah. rachel's reaction is also nonsensical like yeah, so yeah. there's a point where kurt's like no rachel you can't you can't give him what he wants and the entire time farron is basically saying you know do this and when you're agreeing with farron re-examine your your your, your plan <laughs> <laughs> um so so like kurt's saying you can't do this and, and rachel is just like i appreciate it elf but i have to and i'm and i go but do you yeah. Do you really? Because <laughs> given the logic that you, that's been set up here, the one thing that you can do to save the universe, either Necrom's bluffing, like Kurt thinks he might be, and Necrom can't really destroy the universe, or Necrom's not bluffing, and he's going to destroy the universe either way. So really, just not turning on the power is your only play here. Just yep. don't do anything, and everything's either going to be fine or it's not. But like her plan makes no sense. But that's okay, because none of the backstory made sense. I sound like I'm being hard on it. I don't care. It was fun. Seeing yeah. Kylan poke Necrom's magic Oz head in the eye with the swords is so cool. Because um, so Kylan's, <laughs> Kylan's entire purpose in the book up until this point is just like, I mean, we, we already talked about it a couple episodes ago. His power is actually kind of lame and it doesn't really come up that much. Kylan's purpose is just to be kind of a cool 90s hero before it gets exhausting you know we're about to have a whole bunch of sword wielding randos just pervading comics but right now you know he's 
kind of unique as the team's new Wolverine, but not with Wolverine's attitude. I mean, he's kind of fun. There is a missed opportunity here that I sort of, one thing that I wanted more of is I agree that it's neat having Kylan as this chosen one, who is the one person who can hurt Necrom. What I wanted more of is Farron is also set up as the chosen one who can hurt ne ne Necrom. You know, they're from two alternate, like, religious viewpoints of what to do farron's got his you know his very steeped in christian lore style version of i am the chosen one kylan's more of a pagan otherworldly chosen one type and it appears that kylan's the one who's right except for no really rachel's the one who's right but like there's three different mythoses there's three different religions three different traditions approaching the same end of the world scenario all sending a chosen one to get there and i would have loved to see a story about what wait which of us is really the chosen one and play, that play out and it's set up and then it just the comic just doesn't get to it like kylan sort of says he's going to do it and farron yells at him a bit and then there's no resolution to that and i think that's because i keep saying it he's a new writer it's something i would have liked to have seen done he needed another 10 issues in order to get that there and then my other first impression thing that i love is you know superman's in this comic with the super pets that's neat i know crypto. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah crypto and streaky and superman's back that's something. I like that. <laughs> well, can I ask you, Andrew, about the Dark Phoenix callback? Because we did talk about that a little bit before the pod. Um, and you confirmed that it's from Uncanny 192, I believe. So this specific flashback to Rachel's Hound days with um, older Kitty. And, you know, some very Claremontian dialogue here between Kitty and Rachel on page five. Yeah. We're trapped. And Kitty says, I am anyway. I knew that from the start. Rachel, my love, this is where we part company. So, you know, Kitty and Rachel Shippers that's a little something there for you it's a very touching moment um but yeah I mean you said that you sort of liked this callback Andrew like did you want to expand on that at all um sure I, I think for one thing it shows Davis reading outside of Excalibur obviously which is which is kind of cool because I think it's really important we've talked about this before how Excalibur is a natural extension of Rachel's story arc from X-Men uh and that's where she becomes for me at least a really really satisfying character someone who um, um finds their agency uh in, in a way that they really could couldn't early on so calling back that far back which is way way beyond um the scope of excalibur i think is a nice touch and then we've got the the callbacks as well to um the actual dark phoenix saga her, that her question mark mother was involved with um you've got the idea of um an interstellar battle in which a planet is destroyed you've got an abandoned i don't know what to call it cosmic civilization where a fight occurs which is like the um the blue side of the moon uh, in the dark phoenix saga yeah. uh, and you've got the resolution through um overloading the circuitry of the villain um, which is how Phoenix takes care of both the White Queen and Mastermind. So all these little callbacks are great because it just it really emphasizes this issue 50, coming back to what Andy was talking about as um, a, an occasion comic, an event comic, because it really is reaching that far back to all of these pieces, not just of Rachel's lore, but of the Phoenix as well. So he, he's really casting a wide net and pulling it together. As we said, there's holes in that net, um, but, but it is really nice to see someone trying to tell a story on that scale or scope. I have a question for Andrew. It's, just, it's a weird thing just because you you saying it that way is the way that I felt about this when I read it in 1992, I think we're up to. Yeah, sounds right. Okay, 1992 when we read this and you even said, 
you know, he went that far back all the way to 1985. I mean, it's not actually that long. It's like seven years. <laughs> it's still impressive in comics, though. Most writers don't go back three. We've had writers on this book who didn't read the issue before. Okay, so I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not dissing Davis on it. I'm more saying, do you think it, it really is special? Or do you think it is that everyone else, well, not everyone, everyone else, because Claremont was absolutely pulling off of his own stuff. Some of our other writers have failed, or is it that Davis is really going above and beyond? Because probably you should familiarize yourself with the lore of a character that you're trying to do an epic story of. I mean, he's trying to do an epic Rachel story, so he should understand mm -hmm. the these background pieces. It, he did the right thing, is what you're saying, right? Like, he, Well, he, yeah, I think maybe we're on different sides of um, expectation here. Okay. I don't expect most comics writers to do that. I, I, okay. I, don't, I don't see it happen very often, quite frankly. <laughs> right, uh, right. Where, so you know, they get a few notes from the line editor or something like that. They don't actually go back and connect the stories. More often than not, they're trying to distance themselves from the original stories to make it their own, right? Because why would you tell someone else's story? Um, but, but Davis is... I don't know. I, I think what he's doing in that sense to me, and this is again, just my personal reading. And as you said, I, I'm very immersed in X-Men. So I'm accustomed to that long form storytelling. To me, I think it's actually pretty abnormal. Uh, and I do like to see it. And we see it as well in the way he connects to the old Captain Britain mythology too. Well, with the the scene that Anna pulled where with, with Kitty and Rachel. So I recognize that because I've said on this show before, in 1985, 1986, 1987, my favorite artist in the world was John Romita John Jr. John Romita Jr. So, so I absolutely looked at uh, and I it was funny because um, I didn't get to, when, when we were planning the show, I didn't get to chime in because Anna posted in our in our, our host chat that, you know, I think I recognize this. And Andrew's like, oh, you do? And by the time, like you guys had finished talking about it by the time I saw it, like hours <laughs> later. And I'm like, because in the picture, I'm like, and, I'm, and I hadn't reread it yet. I'm like, well, it's, yeah, that's the John Romita Jr. artwork which I know because I read all of those at that time, not because Claremont was doing them, but because J.R.J.R. was doing them. And that's, and, and which is how he used to sign his name. Not only is he doing homework as a writer, he's doing homework as an artist because his version of Rachel and Kate, adult Kitty, going through and trying to escape Project Nimrod, it's not an exact copy, but it's it close, very man. much feels like if I were doing this in film, this would be an alternate take. It would be alternate camera angles of the exact same scene it it meshes mm. very well there's adaptations it's a little different because he wants the story to be a little different but it feels very organically meshed in to this plot thread that frankly claremont had you know wiggled around and dropped seven years before you know i'm really surprised i guess or not really surprised but sort of surprised that there's no footnote in these panels i mean we get yeah. the, the dark border set that indicates it's a flashback of course but there's nothing that says see x-men 192 here mm -hmm. which i think would have been normal practice yes at this time right yeah yeah very much so it, it, it should say at the very at the very bottom um cxmen 192 and then in in parentheses like ed kavanaugh <laughs> yes <laughs> his name's terry but he but they all, all editors sign their, their name yeah. ed and Terry didn't have like a cool nickname, right? Like, like, uh, uh, yeah. It was past, past that era and nobody gave him one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's sad. No. 
Well, speaking of the bond between Kitty and Rachel, let's talk about this merging thing, which we keep talking about, and we can come back and talk about some of these big hero moments, because I actually do want to spotlight Micromax's moment, because I do think it's pretty great. Oh, but- Micromax is in this comic. Oh, I know, I know. But let's talk about the merging first, maybe we can bring it back in final thoughts and talk about some of those moments. Um, yeah, so I actually really love the merging, and I think that we're sort of like having different mileage on it and stuff, but I'll give you first crack at it, Andy. You know, we've already said that we think it doesn't make sense but did you find any kind of symbolic or emotional value from from what happens here well this scene was one of the other reasons why i wanted it <laughs> because i want to give you all credit and i've said this to anna independently that you know that her scholarship has rewired my brain in terms of how i read comics mm-hmm. and so is this podcast and this is like the perfect example of that because you know pre oh gosh oh golly oh wow andy would have read this scene and thought oh it's it's excalibur turducken or it's excalibur <laughs> I, don't believe it. I would have gone, I would have gone the food route no that's what we're calling now now. Read it, <laughs> that's read it, i'm like oh yeah there, this is a five-way <laughs> and uh, and I w- so I'm grateful to y'all because I wouldn't have seen that without having had this podcast to lead me in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I obviously have thoughts about it. I mean, even the fact that I know that this is me, but like even the way that Alistair introduces it, and I think he's supposed to like be circling his two index fingers. <laughs> like, he's also kind of making the dicks touching like gesture. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what question I had for you all about this scene. Do you think do you think it's significant the order in which they merge? Oh, that's a good question. Oh. Huh? I'm, I'm I'm counting. I'm, hold on, I'm looking. I'm yeah, looking. Kitty Kitty merges with Rachel. Rachel first. Rachel with Kurt. Kurt with the Tanaya. idea that Brian would be invited in last makes a lot of sense to me. Well, if you're doing, <laughs> I, I I see what you're going for. They're also going shortest to tallest. So and Kitty has <laughs> Kitty Kitty has to be first because she's the her power necessitates yeah. this. So I. I get why kitty's first but they're they're going shortest to tallest i mean there's certain things i think it's interesting i also think they did it so that it's like the least problematic people merge together because kitty and rachel is you know a viable romantic couple you know rachel and kurt you know they have been a romantic couple as we've complained about on the pod before but well, they not, hadn't yet. Yeah, they not hadn't. at this time not at this yeah. time but still that's at least i think less would feel a little bit less creepy than it's sort of being kurt and kitty at this time and then okay. kurt and meg Megan, of course, are a viable romantic pairing. And then it's in Megan's body that we see Megan step inside Brian. So I think the choices are intentional and they're sort of justified with super science logic of like, it's Kitty and Rachel's powers that activate this whole thing. So there's a lot of different ways that we could read that. But I do like that question about whether the order matters. I am hesitant to read too much into it, but I did think about that question. I think it's hard to, um, in light of the previous love triangle that, again, Davis mm-hmm. kind of put an end to, I think you especially have the kind of spotlight the idea of Megan reaching out to Brian in Kurt's voice yeah Kurt reaching uh-huh. out through Megan's body like there's there's uh-huh. something interesting there oh yeah mm-hmm. okay yeah I had a question for all of you did you read this as she was speaking with the voices of different people or is she just speaking with Kurt's voice like I know you have no, she's, the, she's, the yeah she's and everything suggesting yeah you think that she's flip-flopping um, not only that, I think I can tell when she's meeting each person, which might not match up with each person. Like Kurt's the most obvious because he uses German words, right. but yeah. I very much feel as though on that first page thirteen, the bottom panel, first word, first word balloon is Kurt, second is Kitty, third is Rachel, and probably fourth is Megan. Hmm. 
talking about herself in the third person. I could buy so, that. Yeah. I was curious so, yes, whether we read it I think they do. Yeah. I think I read it as Kurt. And I, I think that's probably, I mean, as, as Mav said, you, you've got the marker, right? With the, the German. But also in terms of um, um, Kurt being in the leadership role. Yeah. But I can totally see it the other way as well, that it's it's each individual voice. Well, because it's set up, you know, Kurt asks at the bottom of 12, Rachel, can you form a mind bridge to let me see through Megan's eyes? Which is a weird question anyway. Why does he need to be involved? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <'Cause> true. <laughs> I mean, the thing that Kurt does here is kind of to be that guy who's sort of on the fringes of it, explaining things, sort of observing things. So I think I kind of makes sense to me that it might be his voice, but that's also, I think, a less interesting reading than it being all of their voices. So I'm not really sure. I was just curious about whether we'd read it differently. So how did you read it? And how did um, Andy read it? Yeah. How did you read it, Andy? Like Kurt's voice or multiple voices? That That's interesting. I mean, I you know, you start out with yeah, so I'm automatically going with with kurt there but i think you know what mav said about the third and fourth balloons there's no i in any of those mm -hmm. in yeah. those phrases so you know everybody's talking the third person so i mean could it be like a, a com that it, it we're building towards a communal voice yeah 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 that's the third option right i mean let's talk about the symbolism of this and we can talk about the super sex stuff in this a little bit as well like the thing that i like about this from a super sex angle i mean for one thing it relates to the ways that we've talked so often about excalibur being a sex farce and that being one of the original contexts for the book and that is something that davis moves a little bit away from in his run it's more of sort of the claremont era that we see the sex farce emphasized but at the same time in terms of this being a team that has a lot of sexual subtext i mean not that that's not true of all superhero comics but it's certainly been a big feature of this book and being a team emerging from trauma to form a new family again not unique to this book but still the symbolism of that has to factor into this particular scene right and okay so from a super sex angle the thing that i like about it is that it's this presence and absence of super sex thing because this is sexy if you want to read it as sexy you don't necessarily have to read it as sexy but if you do read it as sexy it's really fascinating because it's not like someone having penis and vagina sex on panel it's something different than that about the ways that bodies can relate to each other in different ways and the different possibilities that bodies can relate to each other especially when you add superpowers to the mix when you have bodies that have telepathy that can phase that can teleport that can shapeshift what ways might those bodies be interrelated and there's a lot mm -hmm. of sexual possibilities there so it's not that we're getting that, that that activated here this isn't an orgy and i don't think it's supposed to be and yet even the fact that the well okay i mean it could I be but i mean i'm just okay I'm just saying they're it's not a, scissor it's not each a, other in order to in order to, <laughs> in order to visually like in each case, each case is stepping in there's clear genital alignment as the as the you know as the unification there's a lot of superhero comics and okay that's a shit back up for the listeners because this is I always forget that you know other people are listening it's not just the four of us talking so backing up Anna and I in particular have talked about this a lot we have we I know have very strong feelings about how probably if you can think of a sexual way to think of a superhero comic someone understood that they were doing that when they were making it it's always there whether you want to see it or not this is a comic where it's it's not me wondering you know does Reed use his super stretching in the bedroom that's that's something I might wonder their genitals are are aligned here in order to connect them as singular beings. That's the only way of looking at this. Like when when Kitty steps into into Rachel, 
they have two heads, they have multiple arms, and we are crossing over at the pelvic region. And then Rachel does the same thing to Kurt, and then Kurt does the same thing to Megan. That's how this works. It's impossible to not see. It's kind of yeah. great, too, because even just when you're picturing it, like, I mean, I'm looking at the Kurt and Megan one, and it's like, <sighs> they have both a penis and a vagina in this image. Yeah. And because they've each got sort of like, there's three legs going on, and like, they're partially merged. And I mean, again, that's that way that the presence and absence of super sex really activates your imagination, because the fact that explicit sex isn't present is actually what makes it exciting sometimes in a scene like this. Because I mean, mm -hmm. again, it's something queerer than if we just had traditional heterosexual pornography on the page, because this is a different possibility this is like a gender fluid possibility like building off of the superpowers of these characters of like this blue monster demon guy merging with this hyper feminine shapeshifter and having multiple sex organs merged in the same moment it's like that's a hell of a lot more exciting than like straight up sort of like <laughs> fucking in a traditional porn right and that's what and, i find particularly exciting here and it's very clearly again i know it's not i know it's played as team building not as sensuality yeah, yeah. But that's that's what I'm getting at when I'm saying it's not an orgy because it like it has that component, uh, but it's not like played like that on a primary level, I would argue. It is it but it is also described very clearly that you know we are connecting we are using kitty's yeah. powers and rachel's powers to connect yeah. our neural synapses yes. so that we are one mesh <laughs> this is how orgasms work okay like like oh. if you've done the science like like if, if i'm explaining how neural connections work that's how all feeling works it's why we enjoy sex as a I was gonna say as a species, but no, as animals. Like it's literally because it's not just humans. That's literally why living creatures enjoy orgasms is because of the functions that the hive mind of Excalibur are describing here. It's impossible to, if you know the science of it, it's impossible to ignore in this one. And I don't think it's just like a, you know, we're a bunch of people who study sex and superhero comics for a living. So I don't think it's just us reading into it. I don't know how you not do that here. We get the next page as well, which is, you know, the visualization of the energy matrix. It does really remind me of a recent Trojan commercial sort of trying to <laughs> metaphorize a female <laughs> orgasm. <laughs> like, anyway, Andrew, please go ahead. Oh, just there's a couple other things that, that contribute to that symbolism. Um, mm -hmm. We already mentioned that it's riffing on Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix has a really established symbolic vocabulary in which um, merging together is sexual and sex mm -hmm. is merging together. So there's that at play as well. And we've talked before about how the, the fundamental character arc of Excalibur throughout its entirety, regardless who's writing it, is all these characters trying to cohabitate. Um, yes. So having them come together physically in issue number 50, the event issue, does very much read as a consummation. And like it leads as a, you know, it reads as a screw your love triangle. We're just all going to be together, you yeah. know? And I actually really, really love that from like a utopian romantic standpoint. It could have done so many... <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a flaw with uh western particularly american superhero comics mainstream because certainly during the cca era that pervades till today i've talked about this a bunch i will talk about it in the future we are probably doing a conference where the three of us talk about this non-normative relationships in airy meaning more than one person relationships are really really hard to do they're hard to do because they're rejected socially which means the cca which is always going to be 30 years out of date of, you know, where, where society is, has a problem with it. So you could do a very, very interesting story if they started having non-normative feelings for each other that based on, much like in episode, I mean, issue five, which I guess was also our episode five, where Rachel and Kitty were inside of each other, literally, 
and we wanted to read more into it, which nothing has been done with. I get why there are queer readings, including my own, of Rachel and Kitty as, as a couple that come after that. But we are adding that. And I would love to have seen a, a world where after this happens, we go, okay, we really need to deal with the fact that, you know, I, I was inside of you. <laughs> like if that, were, if that were a story that happened in Excalibur after this moment, that would be really, really interesting. Like that was never going to happen in, in a 1992 code era comic. Well, I know. Mm. And that's where you get burned by the presence and absence of super sex, right? By keeping right. it you know, not official, like it didn't actually happen by maintaining that absence, you maintain a deniability. So, you know, the person who makes this comic can be like, oh, it wasn't about that. You know, the people that, the, the company that makes this, oh, it wasn't about that. You're just reading too much into it. You know, that thing where they all merge and then Brian Braddock, who's like blown up to be an enormous size, is flying through. A perfect masculinity, like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> is flying through this matrix of circles in which different energy bolts are like swarming through other energy bolts mm -hmm. and, you know, both mm -hmm. of way in a potentially feminine and potentially queer and potentially gender fluid way yeah you can totally be like that's not about that because it isn't actually present and that's where you run into problems where and i run into problems like this too where it's just if you're going to argue that there's a value to the non-explicitness of sexuality in these spaces you get burned by the non-explicitness too because that again becomes denial right so you know it goes it cuts both ways it cuts both ways did are are you are you satisfied with our with our super sexy discussion of this scene, Andy? Did it live up to your expectations? Would you, and would and would you like to add anything? Um, I don't know if I have have a lot have a lot to add, but it. I mean, I do. Again, I, I appreciate having a front row seat for that conversation. <laughs> there, yeah. there is one other thing I want to add because because it and this goes into a little bit about the science of it, which Andrew brought oh, up. Oh yeah, we did. I, I I got so caught up talking about the wonderful super sex element of it well, that I like it, ignored the fact that it definitely doesn't make any sense. <laughs> well, it, I think this is tying both the science of it together and the sexiness of it together. After it happens, and this is Alistair's idea. Okay, so there. The the world's about to end, and Alistair says, "Okay, here's what what, what would fix this. Maybe if you all fuck, <laughs> which is which is the kind of thing that I would do because oh. I am I am that weird pervy guy. Where where I mean, I would not say you all. I would absolutely include myself in it. And it's sort of weird that Alistair just wants to stay stay here and watch. But you know, your kink's not my kink, so fine. That said, after it's his idea." complete with hand gestures he says like cerise and kyle uh, everybody else shows up and and alistair's like yeah i don't really understand what's going on here what <laughs> you you made this happen and even if i want to say it's not sexual if i want to deny the super sex of it and you don't understand it dude you are a comic book scientist like how do you not under like for him he basically says i don't understand how this is working and his exact lines I really don't know. This is all. This is all way over my head. It was your idea. <laughs> you know how are you, how was it over your head? Like I get why Cerise, Micromax, and Farron might not understand it, but this was literally something that you decided should happen on the previous page with a hand gesture. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was above your head, and that that bothers me. In that, like, it feels as though this was chew inside baseball of alan davis wanting to say yeah i don't know what this means but look i just wanted to do it like it, <laughs> it, it feels like alistair is speaking for alan here yeah. in a in a i don't understand the science of it but look it's cool there are there are little you know five person monster kind of thingy that's cool like i think that i think that's <laughs> yeah. what he wants to do here and it's a little i'm like no it that took me out of it a little too much 
I understand, but yeah, but I, I also had the reading of it where I was like, Alistair suggested that they do this scientific thing, and then it became a super sex thing, and he was like, whoa, that's not where I thought it would go. <laughs> Except for Alistair is totally okay with super sex things, it's, a, know, it's the one thing we know about him. Yeah. Andy, Andy, did you want to add something? Please go ahead. Yeah, no, just the big then single panel page of every Brian with everybody in him flying through the multiverse and it re- kind of reinforces again this idea that without understanding the net the how or why like a musician composing a tune by feeling an instinct excalibur redirect power absorbed from the matrix back into the energy lattice stimulating yeah. the contracting filaments to every oh. grow to new growth in every plane yeah um that seems to be a, a one hand admitting you know that this doesn't make sense but this is what i wanted to to draw and do <laughs> here, but also that you can you can pull me back if I read if I'm you know you're you're pushing me to read and and going too far or whatever with um, what I'm learning from this podcast in general, <laughs> but but you know there's a lot of language in there about vibrating and stimulating mm-hmm. and so oh, no, on. I think that's yep. there. <laughs> I think you're right. No, as you were reading, and I was like, oh, thank God you read that. I would have been so sad if we had not read that. No, absolutely. And that's a place where I would argue that it is being done intentionally. You know, that meaning of it is being intentionally teased there for those readers who are interested in seeing it. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Rachel's big hero moment here, because this is Rachel taking the Phoenix Force back. And then, as I said at the top, getting nine freaking pages where she beats the snot out of Necrom. Well, sort of beats the snot out of him and sort of defeats him in another way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because we've had Rachel just sort of, you know, deck Frankie Ray before, but this isn't that. This is a much more monumental fight. So um, I'll give you a first crack at it, Andy. Did you love this big hero moment for Rachel? Did this feel like a worthwhile climax of Rachel's story up to this point? Yeah, I mean, I do love the the cosmicness of it and how it builds in it builds kind of you know in crazier and crazier ways that Necron first thro- shoots magma at her out of the core of the planet, then she smacks two asteroids together on him and then he makes planet go turn into a sun and and smashes two moons at her like this is huge my only i don't know if it critique or whatever of is i i really wish this were silent that i was wondering if dialogue because i don't feel like any of the dialogue or captions adds much of anything to Mm -hmm. to this scene i mean we it's just describing what's happening in the in the visuals I was wondering if someone would say that. I was almost anticipating Andrew saying it, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> I did complain about that in an earlier issue that Alan Davis was writing too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's learning to write. He doesn't know how to, I mean, uh, we said that before. He doesn't know how to trust his artist, even though right. it's him. No, one of the things I wonder with though, is that if this is his choice at all, I've talked to like Roy Thomas, for example, and asked him, you know, about his use of, like overly explicit dialogue that that matches the action that's going on on the page and he would he would say things like well there was this empty space on the page and i had to put something there Mm, and so it makes me wonder if there's some kind and i've never seen anything more about that that there's some kind of editorial decision at at marvel that if he turned in eight silent pages like this they would go no there has to be something to read here i don't think he would have gotten away with eight i mean with eight silent pages there's a lot of talking and saying nothing here i mean there's a lot of oh no i am being hit with (laughs) cosmic energy in like literally staccato word balloons like that and it's just like stop 
just like yeah, I know, I I know what cosmic energy bolts. I I have read Kirby comics. I I get what's going on here. Um, <laughs> and it, it is a bit much. And it's uh, I am inclined to think it is him not trusting his artist of himself because spoilers. There's going to be coming soon. We're going to have Alan Davis writing books that he didn't draw and I don't think he does this as much and maybe he should have in some in some cases there are some stories that he wrote that were drawn by artists who don't match his style as well and here he could have gotten away with it and it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have seemed so weird well I want to revisit the Rachel characterization question and to specifically pull it back to something that Andrew said a couple of episodes ago about Rachel not being a reiteration of the phoenix but rather an evolution of the phoenix and I was wondering how you saw this sequence playing into that because that really resonated with me in this sequence but I was curious if you had thoughts about it yeah I, I think it applies I, I think for me Davis has established an anticipation so he has to really outdo himself with this battle it has to be epic and because it's the phoenix it has to be cosmic because Rachel's been withholding the phoenix both for personal reasons and then more recently for you know keep Necrom from getting it reasons so when she cuts loose it's it's actually really satisfying in a very like visceral lizard brain kind of way um, and Rachel doesn't get to cut loose that, that's always been her arc she's afraid of the phoenix's power or other people are trying to control the phoenix's power or even her own teammates are trying to control her use of the phoenix's power so seeing her get to go up against a cosmic foe one-on-one -on -one, completely cut loose i think it's a pretty good battle like there's a lot of um, planning and strategy involved in it and like it, it is a little bit sandbox-ish uh, like a kid bonking his star wars toys together in the scale of it but again i think it has mm -hmm. to be to be satisfying mm -hmm. like that and then she outsmarts the guy and she specifically punishes him with the thing that she's been dealing with right that feeling of being overwhelmed by the phoenix or that fear of being overwhelmed by the phoenix so it's really cathartic that she literally attacks him with that thing that has been assailing her all this time and through that she in theory ascends because she comes out of it um, i'm in the original phoenix uniform no i, I love this moment for rachel I, I think this is one of my favorite rachel moments of all time do you think she dies no okay because to me i read it as though she's dies and, re and reborn because that's what yeah 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 do. but like the very specific husk of rachel after she's given neck because necrom is a vampire and to me i read it as she gave him all the power burn, burn let, let him consume her burned out his body and now the phoenix is i don't think that's her original body that comes to earth i think that's the phoenix rebirth body but huh. i don't know that i i don't know that that plays out given in the 30 years since you know <laughs> but that's, that's interesting I, though i like that's that. how i read it because it is very definitely given the shriveled up body that happens and given what we know phoenix did with the original gene gray body at least as per the burn revisiting of her in x factor right like like in, in fantastic four the continuity of phoenix at this point is phoenix healed gene's body in the cocoon and you know rebirthed her in the body of gene phoenix that ends up sacrificing herself on the moon so i feel like rachel the original physical body from the future dies in the void of space and then phoenix rebirths her in the same green uniform that it rebirthed gene in back when gene was the first phoenix that's how i read it yeah well i mean the interesting potentially complication or addition to that was i was thinking about trans metaphors for rachel and her creating a new body for herself and i mean it's not that that's something that we're sort of given here necessarily but in terms of the way a number of readers do like to read rachel and you know the thing with the body shop and spiral that we talked about before and then in this mm -hmm. final climactic moment for her to kind of overwhelm necron with her power and then build a new body for herself out of that sacrifice 
sacrifice can be very symbolic in that way. I don't know if we had mm-hmm. listeners who had thoughts about that. I'd love for them to tweet right. at us. About so that, it that's never been yeah. one of, I mean, I've said that's never been one of my particular readings, though I get it. And here it's just like, I think here is a certainly an opportunity for it. Because I do think that this is, again, Phoenixes ignoring comics, Phoenixes in mythology, and then absolutely in X-Men comics, the Phoenix is about rebirth. And in order for there to be rebirth, the Phoenix classically has to die. Can we talk just briefly before we close up the Rachel segment and kind of move to some final thoughts where we can touch on some other big hero moments from this issue? But it is very unusual for Davis to have unconventional panel layouts, which he has here. And I thought we could bring some of our comic scholar knowledge to that a little bit and kind of talk through with our listeners uh, what's kind of going on here with some of this experimentation. So Andy, you're obviously a comic scholar. You know your way around a panel, a page or two. Do you want to take a crack at what's happening with some of these layouts? Layouts in this cosmic sequence, like treated like a comics class. You know, why are we getting this treatment of this scene in this way? Why is Davis using these more experimental layouts here to capture the magnitude of this fight? You know, kind of being a Davis fan from from way back, one of the things that attracted me to his earlier work was his similarity. You know, the clear influence of Neil Adams that then mm-hmm. is kind of phased away over the years but these layouts really remind me of the things neil adams was doing in the 70s um i could see uh, that you know, yeah in green green lantern green arrow if we look like carefully at them we might see there's there might be a kind of progression to them but what i really like is you know how they end and then we get back to pretty standard grid Mm-hmm. when things settle down that transition I, I think really works well and you know bringing us to this height of the you know final image of the phoenix obliterating necrom and then empty space and then facing us on the same page you know on, on that two-page spread is then an orderly um you know seven panel page yeah 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 it's very dramatic sort of when we come out of that moment i mean i was thinking about some of the you know just basics of sort of the oddly shaped panels and sort of the overlapping panels and stuff that we get in this fight because it becomes more intense as the fight sort of progresses too you know he starts using some of the oddly shaped panels but he increasingly gets rid of the what we call the gutter around the, the panels gutter. yeah and, uh, so and, we should go back a little switches, bit which is to full page bleeds as well in that section yeah because the the tilted panels start a little earlier the tilted yeah. slightly, slightly overlapping panels start a little earlier where we have uh we finally have kylan acknowledging the, the death of um of Sathneen. but like when kylan's having his little hero moment we start seeing these tilted panels which you do mm-hmm. in order to show action you know it's the equivalent of shaky cam in in movies right but then once rachel goes cosmic the panels start growing and overlapping more yeah. um to the point that once she's outside of the bounds of the universe is specifically on page ooh, I lost well we, page. we lose the page numbers because of yeah. the full bleed so yeah i think it's like around page 28 they start completely overlapping to where there's no gutter and the panels overlap not just each other but the outside of the page so this battle cannot be contained literally cannot be contained by the comic and that is the effect you get to the point where when she goes super phoenix and burns out and at the very end of the um, fight, you know, on page 34, the phoenix is the entire page. It has disrupted the panel right before it. And then there is peace in the panel afterwards because that last panel on page 34, before we go back to the seven page spread that Andy mentioned, is also a pure straight vertical panel with 90 degree angles. And mm-hmm. it, it is very regular because calmness has in the death of Necrom 
calmness mm -hmm. has returned to the universe. Yeah, and I mean, the hard borders of that panel, the dark panel on the, on the bottom of page 34 sort of brings us out of that space. I mean, I'll note too that the full bleed, so what I'm talking about when I say that, it means, you know, there's no white gutter around the outside of the page anymore. That happens specifically on the page where Rachel takes the Phoenix Force back and we just get that wonderful, wonderful image of her, you know, mimicking Jean Grey's original introduction as the Phoenix when she busts out of the water and that kind of fiery cross, right? Mm -hmm. Except for I would argue sort of an evolution of that because this image is just unbelievable. I've talked on the pod before many times about how I sometimes have trouble identifying with female characters in superhero comics, usually because of the hypersexualization of them that makes their power hard for me to access sometimes visually. But this to me is just a perfect example of an image that is sexy and yet the sexiness isn't taking away from the power. The sexiness is sort of enhancing the power. I just think it's a really, really, really great image and sort of one that I would point to for, you know, if you're going to have the sexiness of a female superhero, but also have the power, this is kind of a good example of that to me. And just, ugh. I could look at that page all day. It's just like beautiful, beautiful, beautiful to me. But yeah, I don't know. I like, I really like the fight. It's very, <laughs> it's like very like eating too much candy. Like it's just <laughs> so oversaturated and it's so colorful and sort of the panels sort of overlapping and cascading against each other. I mean, I don't know what else I want to say about it, but I did want to sort of highlight the experimentalness of it. I don't think Davis is absolutely the best at this, despite what a great artist he is. I see him kind of trying and that the experimentation is a bit mannered in ways that don't feel organic to me. I think Neil Adams was better at it. But at the same time, yeah, it's definitely done with a lot of thought and purpose as to the symbology of, of the page compositions here. Why don't we move to some final thoughts as a way to... Actually, no, before we do that, we have to talk about the ending. We have to talk about Megan oh. destroying all the towers. <laughs> well, that would have been my final thought. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> well let's like call that moving to final thoughts and i'll let you do that for your final thought first mav because one of my favorite pages in this issue is that the swirly page it's uh <laughs> the page where all the towers are collapsing if that's the one yeah, the you're talking page. about yeah the yes. swirly page <laughs> okay <laughs> so let's talk about the symbolism of this so megan taking brian's powers and then disintegrating all of these towers in like a big bolt of energy this goes back to my intro where i'm like i'm not sure what's what's happening and what's going on here the fact that she does this because Roma telepathically asked them to. It's like, I, I'm done with this part of the story. We, I mean, I, I've talked about how I don't like that the love triangle ended just because clearly Davis didn't like it. This really feels like a, well, I'm done with this. Let's just destroy the thing that makes cross time possible. Boom. Kaboom. It feels weird narratively. And then like diegetically inside their world, the fact that she has destroyed all their worldly possessions. Kitty <laughs> well, gets yeah. mad when oh. Kitty gets mad when someone <laughs> accidentally, you know, misplaces one of her floppy disks. Mm -hmm. She is that OCD about her stuff. And I'm not saying she's wrong. Like when when Brian breaks some of her her her, her belongings, she is absolutely right to be pissed as a person and certainly as a 15-year-old girl, you know. Teenagers can be, you know, sensitive about their about their stuff and she is Megan and Brian just disintegrated their home without asking. They just got this really cool, like, uh, anti-gravity elevator. It's just gone now. You know, <laughs> like, there's, like, it, it is really weird to just sort of, and now, kaboom. And anything that I think I'm supposed to think is cool about the fact that, you know, this is a, I think what I'm supposed to believe is I'm supposed to believe that Megan and um, Brian did this together. They utilized their powers together. It's a joy 
adroit couple decision and this is uh and i think i'm supposed to feel really good about it and i don't i don't feel good about it because like every time i read it i'm just like they just burned everybody's stuff not just their friends but across the entire multiverse people live here you know, they just destroyed all of it. And, and then it's like, uh, yeah, Roma told everybody to move. Everybody in the multiverse moved, right? So, you know, but you didn't get your stuff. You just crumbled everything. And I feel weird about it. And it, I can't enjoy it the way that I think it's, I'm supposed to enjoy it. I think I'm supposed to feel cathartic about it. I don't. I just have questions the entire time. And huh. then the questions are not even, they don't even end with this issue. Because once, you know, you know fast forward to the future, but we're not going to talk about it then. So I'll just mention it now. They're going to move in, or you do see them you see them move into brian's mansion which clearly has way more space than the lighthouse so why the hell were they living in the lighthouse like they had one bathroom and they were constantly complaining about it and now they're gonna live it's like oh yeah by the way i happen to own this mansion it's like this episode there's an episode of community the tv show community where you know they've been sharing the three people have been sharing this this apartment and it's like oh yeah we have this other room yeah (laughs) why that we've never mentioned before and that's how this feels uh i want to defend it in terms of the symbolism of Brian previously wouldn't have been comfortable with them coming into Braddock Manor and even going back to the Captain Britain comics where he had RCX and the Warpies move into his house and he hated it so I can see there being a logic to the lighthouse in that sense like Brian had gone with Megan to the lighthouse to escape all of that and then Excalibur Mm -hmm. following him to the lighthouse that's been part of his character journey but again that is kind of also feeding into your point so yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay It would well, be great if that was if something was done with that. Yeah, but it's not. We definitely have to mention, though. I mean, I almost don't want to mention it because the phallic symbolism here seems so entirely obvious that I just feel like I'm almost belaboring the point. But we've been talking a lot about sort of the imperial impulses of the Captain Britain Corps, and we specifically have here sort of Roma, daughter of Merlin, siding with Excalibur against her father, Merlin, to disintegrate all of these towers to block his bid for mega power, basically. And the significance of it being Megan doing this as well the most hyper feminine member of Excalibur gets to topple the phallic towers this is another thing where I think that the symbolism is significant and I am interested in it you know from like a feminist perspective I'm just like hell yeah that page where like Megan knocks down all the towers let's do this I'm here for it <laughs> and I do enjoy it on that level but I am worried about their stuff too <laughs> so, so would you all feel better if like Alistair showed up at the end and he's with a box of Kitty's PC and and, uh, sure. He's got, he's got Brian's favorite sweatpants draped over his shoulder or something. <laughs> I mean, nothing else about this scene made sense, so why not? I mean, like, what's Alistair been doing for the last hour? Sure, maybe he was evacuating the life, lighthouse. I mean, that would be better. I, I I don't know. You know, where's the jacket? Where's the jacket that we oh, love so much from Phoebe? You know, like, oh, so much so much of this ha- I have questions about. Like, well, we, we do see Alistair going in the plane, so maybe we can yeah. headcanon it that he did take the important things. Yeah, so, sure. I got a question about this this page where all the towers come down are these all on parallel earths yes. that we've seen before oh um because the middle one looks to me yeah. like that's the remnants of kylan's world you know yeah. kylan's world and What's but are any of these others like from the cross time caper or anything like that do you, do you recognize i don't recognize them well they're too distant to know for yeah. sure they, they might be 
That's like a, a good two question. red suns a giveaway or something. Yeah, I thought that one might have been Kylan's world, but maybe I'm wrong. But I also thought the one in blue under the two red sun one was the warlord. Place. I, okay, so yeah, their lighthouse, Brian's lighthouse is lighthouse number one that we see, the big one in the upper left hand corner. That's the other world lighthouse. The other that's world the one, one. that they're physically they are. at. That's where, where Merlin is. The next one is you see the Hujet flying over as it as it's exploring, yeah. and that's the saucer at the top that the TechNet built with the anti grav elevator. So that's Brian and Megan's literal nighthouse, and the others could be other stuff. I thought that Kurt Wagner Warlord World has two suns, so that's what I thought that was. Mm -hmm. But oh, you know, I mean, it could also be Tatooine. I don't know. <laughs> you know? The one with the bodies in it in the middle, I think that. That's like the leftovers of Kylan's yeah. Oh, okay. escape to, to yeah. 616, maybe. I don't know. But you're right. The others have so little detail in them, it would be really hard to write those down. Well, let's move to some other final thoughts. And I'm sure we'll each have a few. Uh, maybe I'll like, do mine first, because I just wanted to just mention the Micromax big hero yeah. moment. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Please. <laughs> because, yeah, like, I mean, we've been pretty hard on him, but he has had, you know, a couple of moments of late yeah. and this is a big hero moment for him so we got it them is. in the helicopter you know back on page seven at the beginning of the comic and you know uh, the higher ups are telling him not to get involved micromax what are you doing what superheroes are supposed to do jump on the bad guy and then you know jumps on necrom and hurts him and yeah this is a great moment for micromax yeah. i was proud of him I, I feel like this you know the way i read this scene is that there's no way that any the team can defeat necrom without micromax having weakened him first so yeah this, without sure. this scene we, <laughs> we don't get the conclusion we get I think micro I love Micromax's design. I think he's a great Alan Davis costume design and that's one of the things that I wish I wish there were more. He, he does the trick that size changing guys do. This is a thing that you know we have seen Hank Pym do. This is a thing that we've seen Ant Man do in the MCU movies. Like, like, yeah, yeah, rapid. Uh, Jack Power has done this in in Power Pack. Rapidly change your size and use momentum while falling to do trickery. It's neat. I don't know that I actually believe they need him to do it. I mean, I think it's great because everyone on the team gets a hero moment here, but I don't think anybody's really mattered but Rachel's. For all of the, you know, we spent half this show talking about the sexy moment where the buildup of them like combining, but nothing actually comes of that either to the point where they even, as just Brian, they say, is that it? That's what we did. Like literally nothing matters except for the Rachel fight. So mm. in as much as like, I think it's cool because everybody got a moment. Cerise got to do something. Kyla got to do, you know, give Micromax something to do. Farron didn't get enough, but he, Farron gets to use like a cool little energy shield. You know, he, always, he you know, everybody gets a little something, something. So this is the most Micromax has ever done up until this point of the comic. So, mm. you know, yay Scott. Scott's his real name. I don't know if you know that. Uh, <laughs> you know, like good, good on him, I guess. At least actually now I'm questioning it. I did that from memory. I think Scott's his name, and now I'm not sure. I honestly but, don't remember. <laughs> I, but yeah, but so yeah, um, so you know, he gets something to do. So yay! But yeah, I'm, I'm going to side with Andy on this. I think from a fight mechanics and from a symbolism mm -hmm. perspective, it has to be everybody did a little something to make this work. 
and I'm gonna I'm gonna buy <laughs> into that word. reading of it <laughs> because that's important to Rachel too because I think her doing it on her own is important but I think her also having the support of her friends and a community is kind of important mm-hmm. so I'm gonna I'm gonna make that work too Andrew I'll come to you for final thoughts anything that you wanted to make sure that we talked about before we leave the issue behind um, okay, so I, I think one of the things that I did want to briefly mention, just because I find it tragic from a, a really sort of microsebiotic perspective, there's a beautiful panel of Kitty testing out her phasing power, pushing it through Lockheed, and there's a coloring error that that turns mm-hmm. Kitty's hand purple, the same color as Lockheed, and I, I was saddened by that, just because I, I thought that would have been like a, a, that's a great t-shirt right there and it didn't quite happen yeah and it's miscolored in the original and the reprint which is unfortunate yeah we, we can fix it <laughs> we have the technology i yeah yes i have photoshop i can fix this for you <laughs> yeah, how about you mav any final yeah. thoughts i i mean it's gonna come up later so and i already talked about it a little bit when she's when rachel spit out because i think that like i told andrew i, I think that she dies and comes back so i think her coming back in this costume is meaningful we don't get anything with it now it's gonna be kind of interesting I mean, we're several weeks away. I just want to make sure because it's going to come up eventually when she's going to change costumes again. I do think it's interesting that she's reborn with this green Phoenix yeah, costume. Yeah. It, it really is. I have nothing else to say about it now because to do to say anything else other than the fact that what I already did, which is I think she died and was literally reborn, to say anything else about it, I think, will be spoilers for future episodes. So I do want to make note of it. So it literally is just a final thought. I want to make note of her costume. Well, the thing that I wanted to make note of was just the last page of the issue, page 44, and some of the ways that Kurt continues to express doubt here, which is setting up some future storylines and setting up some future kind of character beats for this team. And there's a particularly interesting exchange with Kurt and Brian at the bottom of this page where Kurt says, I wish I had your faith, Brian. And then Brian kind of encourages him to have faith in the situation. And of course, that's an interesting line from Kurt, um, not only because he's identified with religion, but, you know, I've talked on the pod before that he's a faithful character in other ways as well. It doesn't have to be sort of limited to the religious context. But for Kurt to be a character who's seen to be expressing doubt and to be seen as having his faith shaken in some kind of sense, um, that's going to be important to kind of some of the things that happen to him as he continues to mature for good and ill into this leadership role in the wake of this issue. And of course, the symbolism of them walking on the checkerboard floor checkerboard. of where nobody's mm-hmm. where nobody's pawns now, blah, blah, blah. Except for you are, because you're yeah, a chessboard. <laughs> nice little, nice little callback. Little character. characters in a comic book. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Andy, final thoughts from you. Moments we didn't get a chance to touch on that you want to make sure that we get a chance to touch on. It's all yours. Like one small thing, which is that Davis can't get through this issue without taking one more dig at possession. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. <laughs> Which now makes me really wish you'd, you'd all do that as, a, as an episode, as, as painful as it would be. I don't know if you want to start a, a Patreon or something and you know, <laughs> chip, in, chip in to get that. But, you know, this kind of wraps things up for me in a way of thinking back to some of the stuff, especially Mav said earlier about this story not making a whole lot of sense. It, it seems to me like from the beginning, the two things that they're supposed to do is keep Necrom from getting the Phoenix Force and protect Merlin's energy matrix. And in the end, they give Necrom the, you know, Rachel gives Necrom the Phoenix Force. It's more than he can handle. And they destroy the energy matrix. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. I, I mean, am I even am I am I reading that that right? That, that... no, that's what happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's it, it's very unclear they what happened. But yeah, they they turn off the energy matrix and then they destroy the lighthouse so that there's no antenna to rebuild it. That, that's what. Right. Happened. So what was the point of trying to protect the energy matrix? I guess in in the first place, or you know, again, trying to keep Necrom from getting the Phoenix yeah. Force. They could have given it to him on page two. If this were, if, if we had a whole nother hour, I could explain my Marxist reading of it, where, <laughs> where, the, where literally the man is trying, you know, like the man has decided, you know, I want you to have freedom, but only in as much as you can defend the capitalist system. And then the bourgeois can rise to the top. And then the proletariat represented by Captain Britain, I guess, um, <laughs> has now has now risen up to destroy the, yeah, it, it's, it's weird. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I wasn't sure whether to read that as a mistake or intentional in the sense that that's a classic twist, right? The things that they were trying not to do ended up being the things that they were supposed to do to win the day, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, destroying the Matrix is a twist. They didn't know that they had to do that until... And I mean, in terms of things to be critical of of this comic, oh boy, the info dump with... We didn't really talk about it, but I mean, the info dump about Merlin and Necrom and the backstory and everything. I, mm -hmm. I love this comic. That was freaking tedious <laughs> that could have done without that being in this comic andy you pointed out like this is a triple size well i mean yeah, well, yeah. no it's double size it's 44 pages of story, yeah which double is size. In, in yeah and i don't mean to be like critical with that final comment more like this is a ride to go on this i think this comic's a ride to go on and it's and it's a fun ride and i don't necessarily care that much where it ends up I was happy to go along with it. Do you think that this would have been worth your two seventy five back in nineteen ninety two, Andy? Yeah, two seventy five was steep. I mean, I think I think why? one of the reasons why I quit reading Excalibur when Alan Davis left was not just because he left, but also because it was a, it was a more expensive comic than others at the time. I think it's a buck seventy five mm -hmm. when yeah. others were you know less than a buck. So yeah, so but no, I I plopped down my 275 uh, without thinking on this now. And I actually, to be honest with you, I have multiple copies of this comic. Um, <laughs> I, pick, I pick it up every once in a while um, for, for a quarter now, but... You know. <laughs> well, it's got the collectible foil cover, so I'm sure it ended yeah, up being worth exactly. lots of money. <laughs> it's not really a final thought, but I just, I, it just didn't, didn't occur to me. We should also note that this is the first issue of a new era, you know, because there's a new logo on this one. Yes, um, the new logo, I know. Which, which and I don't like the new logo as much, yeah. but it's but it is um, Necrom destroyed the logo on issue forty nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they get it, which is a thing that he does on the cover, and they get the new logo on this one. That is a nice touch. I mean, it's a callback to the older X Men cover with the Necrom cover of him destroying the logo. We didn't actually talk about it in that episode, but that is a nice touch for him to do that and us us get to the new logo because he destroyed it. That's well done. Mm -hmm. Um, let's spotlight a letter real, real quick. Uh, this is actually something I already put on our Twitter account, but for those of us, those people who don't follow the Twitter account, uh, <laughs> this one's worth doing twice. So this is a letter from Sharla Hardy, referring back to Excalibur number 46, I believe. Dear Swordstrokes, oh wow, is that Valiant upholding of the comics code or what? Kurt should get a CCA medal, even though he's fighting for his life and jumping all over the page. That loosely tucked towel stayed right in place. Way to go, Kurt. Death before detoweling. I'm impressed. <laughs> like to spotlight the Kurt Thirst letters when we run across them. I was not born to live a man's life, but to be the stuff of future memory. The fellowship was a brief beginning, a fair time that cannot be forgotten. And because it will not be forgotten, that fair time 
may come again. So I think we will leave things there other than to say, Andy, thank you so, so dearly for joining us. I'm so grateful that you could be here with us. Um, what a great celebration of this mega size issue. Thank you so much. But before we go, we should get you to plug your things to plug. So if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what writing or projects or other things of yours should our listeners be checking out? I don't have a huge presence online. I do have a, a Twitter account that's Dr. K 100. So at the, the word doctor, the letter K and the number 100 that goes back to a, a blog I used to used to have called Dr. K's 100 page super spectacular, which I think is another point to how I, you know, I, I valued bang for your buck when yeah. <laughs> my podcast or my, my blog after uh, the hundred page super spectaculars that made my childhood worth. Um, and um so anyway, so Dr. K100 is on, on, on Twitter. I don't do much with it, so it's not necessary to follow it. Uh, <laughs> but I guess if, if I have a social, if I have a presence at all, it's it, I would plug my dogs, uh, my, my dogs, Sherlock and Watson, the Cavaliers on Instagram. So at Sherlock and Watson, the Cavaliers, they're doggy <laughs> detectives who solve crimes. So oh you can you can read up there about their mysteries and their, um, their excitement there. Oh my um, God. Thank you for uh, and, that. And tell us about your books as well, including your new sure. one. Uh, just two months ago or so, The Life and Comics of Howard Cruz, Taking Risks in the Service of Truth came out. It's a kind of critical biography of Howard Cruz, along with a lot of his short comics reprinted in it. It was it was really a labor of love to do that that book. And I'm so glad I got that opportunity and that, you know, I, I was, I was sad that Howard passed away during the course of my writing of that book, but, you know, I hope I did his, his legacy justice with it. And, um, because he's an incredibly important creator that, you know, more people should know. And his, his short comics are just incredibly funny and creative and brilliant. So I hope, um, you know, I hope people can check it out uh, for, for that reason. And then I've got Autobiographical Comics, the book I wrote for the Bloomsbury Comic Study Series, kind of history and analysis of the genre, and then um, lots of other little es essays here and there and different collections and, and journals. Awesome. We will link all sorts of stuff in our show notes and definitely the Howard Cruz book. Um, listeners to our podcast who are is interested in the queer history of comics and sexual representation in comics, any of those topics definitely need to know more about Howard Cruz. So thank you so much again, Angie. Next, in one week's time, things are going to get Jurassic in Excalibur number 51, Don't Drink the Water, in which there are dinosaurs, lots of dinosaurs, and we will be talking about said dinos with a couple of exciting sauropod enthusiasts. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for future episodes let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Mav, for another universe shattering conversation thank you andy for lending us your mega mystical strength thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought Forum music for our truly epic theme song play us out Whoa, marathon session we made it